Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 24. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. <clears throat> the Old Testament is filled with beautiful narratives, amazing narratives but it also contains a lot of narratives about broken people and broken circumstances. In fact, many passages of Scripture in the Old Testament are beautiful because they're about broken people. Broken people, and yet the power of God, the love of God, working through brokenness to bring about lasting hope, to bring about lasting change and a new life. We're starting a new series uh, this, this week, today. Uh, we're going to be looking at various hard passages in Scripture, confusing passages in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're new to the church, if, if you're returning to the church, it's a great series because we're going to be looking at some of the stories that are probably very familiar to you and also stories that are just really disturbing, maybe as you were growing up, just confusing, and you had lots of questions about that people weren't able to answer very well. These are, these are the dark passages, the yet familiar passages 
And yet, we're going to look at these passages and see the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God in each of them. And we're going to start all the way in the beginning today, just as we read, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What happens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? God creates the universe, and then he creates man, and he empowers man to rule the earth. But then in Genesis chapter 2, he says, do not eat from this tree or you will die. Now think about this. In the most technologically, educationally, scientifically advanced culture in world history, why is there still so much evil and injustice and poverty and disease and brokenness in the world? It's not because of a lack of technology and education and science. The Bible actually has a very, very pedantic answer. It's original sin. It's because of our sin. And there's four things we're going to learn about it today. One, what it is. Two, what are the consequences. Three, what's the cure. And four, how do you get it? What is it? Sin. What are the consequences? What is the cure? And how do we get the cure? First, we're going to look at what it is. In chapter 3, you have the serpent. The serpent represents the totality of evil, all evil. And he comes to Eve and he asks, did God really say that you must not eat of this tree? It's because you will be like God. In other words, you don't really need God. If you take of this tree, you don't need God. You can be your own master. It was a lie. Now, you need to know, at the heart of Satan, at the heart of Satan, the heart of the devil, there's a distrust in God that leads to a disdain for God. If you were here last week, we just completed a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And what's the fruit of the Spirit we talked about? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all these things. But what is the fruit of sin? What is the fruit of Satan? It's a distrust of God. It's a disdain for God, a rebellion against God, and it can lead to great acts of sin. In fact, the 20th century, the century had just passed, the 20th century has seen more bloodshed and violence and evil than they say all the centuries in the world combined, all the evil combined in the world. And so in verse 6, when Eve, she looks at this fruit, and it says that it's, she sees that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she starts to distrust God. And instead, she starts to trust in this lie. What was it lie? Why would God withhold something that looks good? Why would God withhold something from me that seems good? It must be because God is not out for my good. What does that teach you? Every time you disobey God, at the heart of that, there's a distrust a distrust in God's goodness, a distrust that, that God is really for you. You're believing a lie. It's an act of rebellion. Now think about this. Eve, she's in paradise, and yet even paradise was not good enough. So only I know what's good enough for me. Every decision we make apart from God, every decision that we make away from God is, is a rejection of God. God is our king. God is our creator. God is, God is the creator of the world, creator of the universe, the king of the world. And yet we've rejected him as king, and so we're battling God. We're battling God, God for control over our lives. What is sin? It's putting yourself in God's place. Very simple. It's putting yourself in God's place. And it affects every desire, every decision, every action you take. 
because of your distrust in God that God is present, that God is faithful, that God is good. Adam and Eve, they eat from this tree, and in verse 7, what happens? They realize their nakedness. They start to experience shame. They sow fig leaves as a covering over their shame. In verses 8 and 9, God calls out, where are you? In verse 10, he says, I heard you. Adam says, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Instantly, instantly, we see a distancing from God. The moment Adam begins to rebel, he, he grows distant from God. His voice, his word, his truth, his goodness, his presence, his life. Sin is hiding from God. Sin is alienation from God, growing apart from God. It's not just acts. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not just things you do. It's, it's a relational distance from God. In the moment, you believe it's going to increase your options and potential and freedom and joy, and yet, in reality, it's actually decreasing your options and potential and freedom and joy. Sin has this, has this power to degrade you, to degrade your soul, to degrade your life. Why? One, if you look at what happens, this action, what, Eve and, what Adam and Eve do, what it does is it brings them on par with the serpent. They both distrust God, and as a result, they both rebel against God. So what happens is because now Eve is, is brought on par with the serpent, and the serpent is an animal, the serpent is a created being, but an animal, sin dehumanizes you. Secondly, in verses 14 to 19, the serpent and Adam and Eve, they experience the shame of sin, the curse of sin as a result. Sin degrades you because you're not living the way you were designed. You weren't designed to rebel against God. You weren't designed to disobey God. You weren't designed to experience shame. You weren't designed to hide. But when you do, you're going against your design. You start to become subhuman, subdesigned. Sin says, God is holding me back from experiencing my real potential. And in reality, it's your sin, your distrust, your rebellion, your disdain against God that's actually holding you back. That's the curse. You're cursed. Thirdly, sin as a result, it makes you miserable. Because you thought that what you're going to do, you thought that the direction you're going to go is going to increase your option, potential, and freedom and joy. So sin doesn't just bring you to the level, lower to the level of a serpent. It doesn't just bring you down to the level of Satan, but it brings you misery, the misery of Satan. Satan is miserable. You see that? Satan doesn't just hate God because he feels like hating God. He is miserable because he is, he is disobedient, distrustful of God. And as a result, we get that misery. We get that malice and because of our distrust, just like the serpent. And as a result, there's a breakdown. You take this fine-tuned German engineer car. You open up the hood. You listen to it. That engineering is so sophisticated. I mean, it's just beautiful. If you see a brand-new German engineer car, you just lift up that hood. You listen to that engine. It just hums and purrs. Why? Because it's in the design. It's so sophisticated. Everything is coherent and neatly integrated. That's Genesis chapter 1. That's Genesis chapter 2, creation. But then you take a rock or a wrench, and you throw it into the core of that engine. It just blows up. What happens? There's brokenness incoherence, disintegration. 
and now you're, you're on your own. That's what happens. That's what happened. In verse 24, Adam and Eve, they're equally cast out of the garden. Why? Because they both went against God's design. In creation, if you think about it, after each day of creation in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at what he created and he says, wow, it was good. This is so good. Every day he says, it was good. It was good. It was good. He's so deeply satisfied in what he has created. When he looks at what he has created, man, people, he says, this is so good. As a result, sin is not just breaking God's rules. You're breaking his heart. You're taking that which he created and took joy in, deep satisfaction in, and you've broken his heart. And the consequences, that's the second point in Genesis 3, is the curse. What are the consequences? In verse 8, God is walking in the garden. God is walking. He's always walked with Adam and Eve. He's walking in the garden. Walking is, is an Old Testament idiom for seeking intimacy. But the garden is empty, eerily empty. Because Adam and Eve, they've experienced shame, and so they hide away. When you've done something, and you, your heart, you just can't, it just tells you you've done something that is just so utterly egregious. What do you do? Do you just run and tell your mentors? Do you run and tell people, look, I've done this? No, what you do is you hide away. You're, just, you're, self, you're filled with self-loathing and, and, uh, and fear. And so they rebelled, and now they're hiding. God is out in the open and walking. He wants intimacy, but Adam and Eve, now they're closed. God desires relationship. Every healthy relationship requires what? Requires honesty and openness, nakedness. Adam and Eve, they're covered up, shivering, hiding. One of the consequences, verse 7, is shame. Realizing your nakedness. Nakedness is an Old Testament idiom for shame. What do they do as a result? They take so, these, these fig leaves and they sew it together. They take these plants, essentially. They sew it together. They cover themselves. In other words, why do we boast so much? Why do we always exaggerate our abilities? Uh, why are we constantly working ourselves to death? We're overworking. Why is status so important? Why is our popularity so important? Why are our looks, some of us spend an inordinate time uh, on just the way we look. Why is our reputation so important? It's because each of those things are fig leaves, insufficient means to cover over the reality of our nakedness, the deep-rooted insecurity and inadequacies that we know about ourselves. We're resorting to insufficient means to cover ourselves up, to cover our sense of inadequacy and nakedness. The world says the way you do it is you got to build. This is what you do. You accumulate wealth. You accumulate power. You get to a place where nobody can, can say that you are inadequate. The world says you got to emphasize your strengths. The world says you got to show people and tell people how gifted you are. Oh, I'm good at this. I'm good at everything we say. 
The world says, cover up your nakedness. Cover up your shame. A lot of us raise our children that way. We raise our children in a way where everything is bad and shameful. And so they're brought up from the time that we are young, especially in an Eastern culture, you're brought up believing that if you do bad things, if you disobey, it's all shameful. Shame, shame, shame. And so we're constantly taught to cover over and hide the dirty stuff in our lives. And as a result, because of our shame, the second consequence is we've grown alienated from God and from others around us. It starts like this. This is how it starts. Human beings are radically relational. Why? Because we were designed to be in relationship. It's why corporate worship is so important. We were designed not just as individuals, but as individuals in community. Adam was, was, was created in paradise. And God says what? In paradise, he says, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates Eve. We were designed, even corporate worship, that's why it's so important. In community, but in verse 9, God says, God asks, where are you? Verse 10, what does Adam say? I was naked, so I hid. There's alienation. Why? If you think about it, the things that you desire the most in life, the things that we desire the most in life, we rarely seek real feedback from other people. It's because there's this fear that, uh, uh, it, that we're exposing ourselves, that we're exposing our motives. In essence, we don't really fear God. We fear how God may impose into the things that we really want. We fear that God's going to ruin our lives, block us from getting the things that we really desire. And so what do we do? We just go for it. We go for it, and then we hide. You know how many people over the last 20 years that are Asian especially have walked away from the church because of not, I mean, I don't know what actually happens in the church, but because of the sense of shame, the inability to express, seek help, and actually apply help into their lives. Verse 11, God asks, now this is the next one, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from this tree? What does Adam say? The woman that you put here, she made me do it. In other words, this is your fault. This is her fault. He turns to Eve. Eve says, that serpent, it's his fault. Sin is alienation from God, which leads to, because of a distrust in God, which leads to a disdain for God because of your rebellion against God. And what it does is because you're alienated from God, you start to alienate, you hide from other people. But as a result, sin degrades. It exposes nakedness. You realize how vulnerable you are. And just like what happens here, did you take this tree? We get defensive. We start to justify ourselves. We start to shift blame towards other people. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's because of our pride. Adam, in a sense, is saying, send her to die. I mean, she's the problem. It's her fault. Actually, it's your fault. You're the one who created her. I'm okay. I'm still all right. Rather than coming clean, we're always trying to come out clean. 
At the root of every broken relationship, at the root of every broken family, at the root of every racial tension that we've seen, let's not even talk about the last two or three years. Let's talk about the last 400 years. At the, let's talk about thousands of years. At the root of every lie, at the root of every bigotry, at the root of every bias, there's an alienation from sin. An alienation of sin because of the pride of our sin. So if you're constantly criticizing other people and yet never confessing, if you're one of those types, if you're constantly gossiping and yet you yourself never repenting, you're really just living out that selfish, proud, self-absorbed, self-justifying, alienating, proud nature of sin that's been a part of of our spiritual DNA ever since the Garden of Eden. Fourth, there's idolatry. Because we're alienated from God, and yet we've been built for community, we're built for intimacy, we're built for relationships, and yet we're alienated from true relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, together, God isn't just for relationships. God isn't just, he just likes relationship. God by nature is relationship. God by nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we believe in a Trinity God in this church. Because of that, God by nature is community, and yet because we've been separated from God, separated from other people and are hiding, and yet being built for intimacy with others, now we start to pour the weight of intimacy. We just look for that one person. We just look for maybe those few people. We just want to cling. We pour the weight of that cosmic intimacy that we've lost on other people. But think about it. No earthly relationship is ever going to be what, what you can only have with God. No earthly relationship could ever be that. We're all broken. God is so faithful. God is so good. God is so loving. He's so fair. He's so forgiving. But because we've distanced ourselves from God, we're still trying to find intimacy. We're still trying to find some semblance of love and approval and acceptance and intimacy without him. We're driven by that. We want that so bad. We will do whatever it takes to get that. We forget. And what it does is it just creates deeper alienation and deeper dissatisfaction, deeper misery. Five, there's suffering. In Genesis chapter one, what do you have? In Genesis chapter one, you see family, work, and rest. A lot of people are surprised by that, but you actually see work. Work existed even before sin. They all existed in the garden. But once we chose to distance ourselves from God, once we chose to distrust God and rebel against God, that curse goes into all those things. It affects family, our work, and our rest. So in verse 16, there will be pains in childbearing. That's family. There's a brokenness from the start, from the moment that your children are born, there will be pain. Verses 17 to 19, it's going to affect your work. The ground is cursed. It's why there's natural disasters and disease and environmental disasters and brokenness. But it's also why our work, our careers, they're always going to be broken. You're never going to find that perfect job that's always perfect all the time. You see that? It's why we're often slaves to our work because on one hand, you're called to work. On one hand, you're called to be fruitful. You need to be fruitful. But then you want that fruitfulness, you want that prosperity without God. 
And so what does God say in the curse? Through painful toil, by the sweat of your brow, and yet there will be thorns and thistles. That means no matter how hard you work, you will experience failure. You're going to experience losses. You're going to experience fruitlessness. Lastly, there's death. Verses 23 to 24, God places an angel with a flaming sword. Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, and now there's this angel with a flaming sword. Angels, they represent the royal presence of God. They represent uh, the, the holy, royal uh, presence of God, access to God. But this angel has a sword. What does that mean? It means there's no access. You're cast out. You're driven out. You're never allowed back in. That means you're no longer accepted by God. You're no longer, you're unrighteous. Why are we constantly working for the approval of other people? Why are we constantly trying to get in with the right people? Why are we constantly, you don't, you pick up, you move, you go to another city, you go to another neighborhood, you want to get in with those people. You see that? We're always looking for the right people in the right neighborhood, the right home, the right job, the right career, the right wealth, anything that's going to give you the status to get you to that level of approval. It's because we're working hard to get back into the garden on our own. But there's an angel with a sword, and that means that if that's what you spend your life trying to do, you're going to eventually come under the sword. It's all going to come to an end. You're going to die trying, and you'll never get the garden. Because you sought from the beginning to increase your options and potential and freedom and joy without God, you are out. You are unrighteous. And the result of that is what? Shame, alienation, self-righteousness and pride, blame-shifting, idolatry, suffering, death. What's the cure? What's the cure? Notice, God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve on the spot. Look at the grace of God. He pursues Adam and Eve. He just, he just asks questions. He's walking through the garden looking for intimacy. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from this tree? This is God. I mean, surely he knows. So why is he asking these questions? He's counseling Adam and Eve. He's teaching Adam and Eve. He wants them to know. He wants them to take ownership of what they've done. He wants them to take responsibility for what they've done. He wants them to take ownership over their sin. But he's pursuing them with intimacy. He's asking questions. He's counseling them. Notice, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions, just the people that he loves. Secondly, he provides for Adam and Eve. They were, I mean, they're hiding in, in, this, in this area, and, and they come out and they're, imagine God looking at his beautiful creation and they're just shivering and hiding and fearful and in shame and they've got this like poor coverings that they kind of made on their own quickly to, to cover over their shame and he sees them and, and what does he do? Verse 21, God makes garments out of animal skin and he covers them. Now think about that. This is God. God was betrayed. God was hurt. And yet God pursues. 
God counsels. God provides because he's so loving, because he's all wise, and yet he's so generous, constantly giving. He knows if he doesn't provide for Adam and Eve, they're going to die. They're going to pay the price. They deserve that, actually. But in order to provide for them, in order to save them, on the other hand, God has to swallow the pain of betrayal all by himself. And yet he does. He still does. This is a foreshadowing. How is it a foreshadowing? In order for Adam and Eve to be covered sufficiently, blood has to be spilt. We call that justice. Now, here's where we say, well, see, this is my problem with God. This is why it's hard for me to believe the God of the Bible. Why, why does there have to be death and bloodshed? I mean, that doesn't sound loving at all. Why can't God just let, hey, you made a mistake? Well, let's just start it all over. Why can't he just let it go? Have you ever been hurt by somebody? Have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Can you just let it go? If we as finite creatures have that kind of difficulty letting go even the smallest betrayals in our lives, how can an infinite God who's been betrayed in an infinite way to an infinite degree just let it go? We were created in his image. You can't just let it go. Anyone who's ever been damaged by somebody knows that. You want blood. You want justice. They must pay, we say, because either they pay the price or you're going to swallow all the pain of betrayal and the humiliation of that and the embarrassment and the shame of that, and you're going to pay. No one, no one just lets it go. Somebody always pays. It's called justice. Either you take on the justice and forgive, or they take on the justice and they pay the price. But God pursues them, and God provides. God provides. He, swallow, he chooses to swallow the pain, the pain of betrayal. And so he pays the price. And in verses 14 to 15, you have the promise. The one time that God speaks to the serpent, he makes him a promise to end him forever, he says. So he says, one day you, the serpent, will strike the heel of the woman's son. One of the woman's descendants will come, and you will strike that woman's heel, but he will crush your head. He will end you once and for all. One day the son of the woman is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of all sin and all evil and all violence and all oppression and all injustice and death forever, but it's going to come at a price he will be mortally wounded. How do we get that cure? How do we get that promise? You see, God tells Adam to obey him regarding that tree. But Adam rebelled. Adam failed. And so in verse 24, he was driven east of Eden. East is an idiom for expulsion. Distance from God, forever now, Adam is distant from God. Yet, Adam receives a promise. And so, even though Adam is cursed, he lives because of the promise. Adam represents all mankind. I mean, a lot of us are confused by that. I mean, I never had a say in that. Who voted for Adam, right, to, to represent me? 
But you have to see the reason why it was Adam is because there was no one better than Adam. No one could, if we, if the entire history of the world and all its people voted for one man to represent them as the perfect man, we would have all unanimously voted for Adam. But because Adam failed, we all failed. If Adam's gonna fail, we're all gonna fail. Centuries later, there was a second Adam, a descendant of this woman, a son of the woman. God tells Jesus Christ, his own son, to obey him regarding a tree. And so you have the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden. There's Jesus at this garden. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Father, will you take this cup from me? The cup that he was referring to was the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath as a penalty for our sins. He's talking about obeying God regarding the tree, regarding the cross. But then Jesus says, not my will, yours be done. And he obeys perfectly and fully to the end. Jesus Christ was driven outside the city, the holy city of Jerusalem where God was, the the city of God. He was crucified outside the city. What does that mean? He was driven out. He was cast out. He was rejected. And he was rejected because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God the approval of God. In other words, Jesus Christ, he took on the curse and he was crushed. I mean, Adam sinned and he was cursed, but he lived. Jesus perfectly obeyed and yet he was cursed and he died. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That word righteousness is synonymous with the word approval so that we might be the approval of God. We might be justified in him. You don't need to justify yourself because you've been justified in Christ. Jesus Christ was cast out. Why? So we could be brought in. Jesus Christ was abandoned. Why? So that we could be accepted. His blood was spilt on the cross. Why? So that our blood Our lives will be spared. We will be clothed in righteousness. That tree is also an idiom. The tree is an Old Testament idiom for the curse. So in that sense, Jesus Christ got the cross. He got the curse. You remember the curse? You will work and work and work, but you you will get thorns and thistles. So on the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus Christ, and he's working, and he's sweating, and he's laboring just to stay alive on the cross. What he's doing is he's performing the work of absorbing the wrath of God as a penalty for our sins, and he's always working. And what does he do? What do you see? He wears a crown of thorns. He's literally wearing the curse. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, this is the ultimate shame. This is the ultimate brokenness. This is the ultimate alienation. My God has been separated from me. This is the ultimate hell. Hell is separation from God. And so he's enduring the ultimate suffering, the ultimate separation. And he says, I'm just being disintegrated. First from the Father. The Father is, I'm no longer integrated with the Father. So the Trinity, in a forensic kind of a way, the Trinity is being ripped apart. Jesus Christ is away from the Father, and then he dies. You remember that sword? Jesus Christ goes under the sword of God's judgment. 
Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our sins. Why? The punishment that brought us peace, the end of the war with God, fell upon him. Jesus Christ experienced the shame, the ultimate shame. He was stripped naked, and then he was totally exposed. You know why he was stripped naked? So he could receive the wrath of God completely unmediated. There would be no covering. He absorbed that wrath unmediated without any covering, and he did this for you. He did this for his people. So you could be intimate with God, so you could be reconciled with God, so you could be integrated with God, you would be in. Jesus' blood was spilt for his people. It was the perfect covering to the degree that you believe the gospel. You no longer need to hide. A lot of us, I mean, we've all, it's not just about making mistakes. A lot of us carry the burden and, and the weight of sin and shame, and we're just using things to cover ourselves to show that we are good people. And so we instantly just start to show that we're good people in the church. We have a good spiritual resume. Look at all the things that I'm doing and my deeds, and we try to do that at work, and we, have a good, we want to be good citizens and carry good resumes, and we want to have a, a nice pedigree, and we work really, really hard, even with our goodness. Friends, this is the end. This is the end of shame. The gospel is the end of shame. It's the end of, of blame shifting and blaming other people for your circumstances. It's the end of defensiveness. It's the end of alienating yourselves from other people. But it's also the end of idolatry and approval seeking. And it's also the end of the only suffering that could ever truly end you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You are righteous. You are justified in Christ. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. Romans chapter 4 says, Blessed are they, whose sins are covered. Let's pray together.